This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm Brett Forster, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for January 2nd. On the pod today, Saskatchewan stops collecting the federal carbon tax on home heating. I'll talk to the minister responsible for Sask Energy about the potential consequences, and an Israeli drone strike in Lebanon kills a senior Hamas leader. Could this escalate the conflict beyond Israel and Gaza? Plus, what issues followed federal party leaders into 2024 and what new ones may arise? The Power Panel is here with their take on the political challenges of the year ahead. We begin in Saskatchewan, where the province has stopped charging the federal carbon tax on home heating bills. The move came after Ottawa exempted home heating oil from the federal tax and refused to add any more carve-outs. Withholding the carbon tax is a breach of federal law that could result in fines and even jail time for Sask Energy executives. Dustin Duncan is the minister responsible for Sask Energy. He joins me now. Hello, Minister. Happy New Year and welcome to the program. Happy New Year to you. Thank you for having me. So if this is meant as a pressure tactic, Ottawa seems to be holding true to its word on no more carbon tax exemptions. So what now? Well, we wait for the federal government to respond formally to uh, both my request to register as the gas distributor here in Saskatchewan on on behalf of the government of Saskatchewan, as well as Sask Energy has submitted a formal uh, application to deregister as the gas distributor. And so uh, those uh, uh, registrations have been sent uh, and uh, we're waiting for an answer from, uh, from Ottawa. Now, if you don't get an answer by the time the carbon tax remittance is due, will you be remitting the tax? Uh, We haven't made a decision at this point. Uh, That won't happen until later in February. Um, So we will be remitting as we normally would in January because the money has been collected uh, in the December billing cycle. Uh, It will start to show up uh, on people's bills as both a carbon tax as well as a credit uh, from the provincial government as an offsetting credit uh, here in January. So people will, uh, depending on their billing cycle, will no longer see or or actually be paying the carbon tax, although they will continue to see it on their bill uh, with a corresponding credit. Um, We'll make that payment, as I said, in January based on what was collected in December. And then when February rolls around, uh, we will make a decision whether or not, uh, as uh, the government, uh, we will be remitting a carbon tax. So we haven't made a final decision on that point. Okay. Now, Minister, federal law says that corporations that fail to remit the carbon tax could face steep fines and executives could also even get jail time. Now, you've said you're willing to go to quote-unquote carbon jail for this, but can you really guarantee protection for employees? And how concerned are you about potential legal consequences? Well, we were significantly concerned enough by the fact that the federal government insists on having within the carbon tax, uh, within the GGPPA Act, uh, the ability to essentially threaten jail time for executives and board members. And so that's why the legislature, uh, before we adjourned before Christmas, uh, we passed unanimously an act that would essentially move the obligations for that one specific part of the federal act um, from Sask Energy and obligate the government of Saskatchewan and essentially me as the minister. So what we're trying to do is essentially say if a decision is made to remit or not remit, um, uh, for the essentially February time period, 
that that decision will be made by the government and me as the minister responsible. Uh, and so it won't be a decision made by any executive or anybody at the headquarters at Sask Energy or the board members or any other agent of that corporation. And the corporation is an entity of the province of Saskatchewan. It's created by legislation, by statute. Uh, it is a government entity. This will be a government decision. And so what we're trying to do is essentially shield anybody that works at Sask Energy of those consequences in the event that we decide not to remit the carbon tax. Again, we haven't made that decision whether to remit or not remit. But if that decision is made, it will be mine to make. Uh, and so what the bill intends to do is essentially shift that responsibility and the obligations and the consequences to me. And I'm prepared to bear them. Now, Minister, you say you have some concerns or you had some concerns. You acknowledge there is risk and a lot of uncertainty. Provincial legislatures have no ability to change the operation of federal laws, and the federal law on this is clear. If you challenge the government, it is likely that Saskatchewan's changes will be deemed illegal. So why continue down this route, given the concerns and given the risk? So Sask Energy is an entity of the province. It's created by provincial statute. And so we can change the provincial statute as it relates to Sask Energy. And that's what we've done. And it was supported unanimously in the legislature, both by the governing Saskatchewan party, as well as the opposition NDP. Uh, and so uh, we have the ability and we have made those changes. Whether or not the federal government uh, essentially recognizes the changes, that is to be seen. We have sent our registration. I have sent my registration to be the gas distributor on behalf of the people of Saskatchewan. Sask Energy has sent their notice to delist or deregister as the gas distributor. It'll be up to ultimately the minister responsible for uh, national revenue. We're awaiting the minister's decision on this. Uh, and, and so we'll, we'll continue to wait. Um, and we're hoping to hear an answer uh, from the minister shortly. And that will, that, will, um, that will cause us to make a number of decisions after that. Mm -hmm. But until that time, we don't have that certainty, and we're looking for that certainty so that we can, again, this is all about providing fairness to people of Saskatchewan that uh, to, to date do not have that same carbon tax fairness as being given to uh, people in Atlantic Canada. That's really what we're all, all we're asking for. All right. On a, on a related note, I want to ask you, what assurances can you give the people of your province that this is not just a pressure tactic and that it will improve their lives if you do have to go through with it? Well, it's going to save significant dollars uh, for people on their Sask Energy bill and Sask Power bills for those people that use electric electricity to heat their homes this winter. Uh, so it's going to save hundreds of dollars for people that use natural gas each year. Uh, it will provide that affordability relief uh, that people are looking for. But again, it will provide that fairness for people in Saskatchewan uh, that are not provided uh, by the federal government, that has not been provided by the Prime Minister when that carbon tax relief was provided to people in it, largely in Atlantic Canada that use uh, home heating fuel, all we asked for was that the same treatment be given to all people in Canada and including in Saskatchewan. And so, um, you know, you can call it a pressure tactic if you want. What this is going to do is provide immediate relief for people on their natural gas bills and their power bills come January 1st. That relief is being provided whether or not the federal government will uh, essentially recognize that and give us the same fairness, that's really for them to decide and for the Prime Minister to make that decision. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, Minister, you estimate this move will save Saskatchewan families about $400 a year. According to Ottawa, the average Saskatchewan family of four gets back 
$1,360 per year on carbon tax rebates, plus there will be a 20% top-up for rural families starting this year. If you don't pay the tax, these rebates will go down or could go down. So will Saskatchewan families really be better off? Well, they, they will be better off because the Parliamentary Budget Office actually says that Saskatchewan families pay in excess of $600 more in carbon tax than they actually get back from the rebates. And they get and the, the other thing to net in, gain from carbon prices. But the other thing, to, the other, right, but the other thing to keep in mind, though, is that when the federal government announced that carbon tax relief was going to come to Atlantic Can- Canadian families on home heating oils, uh, they didn't also reduce the rebate. So the, the, the federal government is in charge of determining the rebate. That's not the province. That's not Sask Energy. That's not Sask Power. Uh, the federal government decided to double the rural top-up at the same time as providing a rebate to people in Atlantic Canada, while at the same time exempting them from the carbon tax. So the two do not have to equal. In your question, you asked, could it or would it? Um, that would uh, that would really be for the federal government to decide. And again, it goes back to fairness. Why would they penalize people in Saskatchewan by reducing their rebate if the government of Saskatchewan makes this move um, by providing that uh, rebate relief uh, or, or carbon tax relief on their Sask Energy or Sask Power bills when they're not doing that for Atlantic Canada? They didn't reduce the rebate. In fact, they topped it up. They doubled it for rural residents while at the same time exempting them from paying the carbon tax. So the the, the two, I don't think, go hand in hand. All right, Minister. And on that note, we are out of time. I really want to thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. There are new fears today the Israel-Hamas war could expand after an explosion in Lebanon reportedly killed a senior Hamas official. Lebanese state media say an Israeli drone strike left at least six people dead in a southern suburb of Beirut. The Israeli military is not commenting on the alleged attack. Among the dead, the deputy leader of Hamas, Salah al-Aruri. According to the U.S. government, al-Aruri was one of the founders of Hamas's military wing and in charge of the group's military operations in the West Bank. The Prime Minister of Lebanon, Najib Mikati, condemned the attack and accused Israel of trying to pull Lebanon into a new phase of confrontation. Matthew Levitt is a counterterrorism and intelligence expert at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. In 2008-2009, he served as a U.S. State Department counterterrorism advisor to the Special Envoy for Middle East Regional Security. Hello, sir, and welcome to the program. What can you tell us about Salah al-Aruri? Salah al-Aruri is one of the founding members of Hamas's terrorist wing, the Qassam Brigades. Uh, was first arrested by the Israelis in the West Bank in 1991, uh, uh, and ultimately, after serving uh, several years in an Israeli prison, was deported, uh, and then lived first in Syria, uh, then Qatar, then Turkey, and most recently in Lebanon. He is now the Deputy Secretary General of Hamas overall, but perhaps what's most important about him is his particular interest still today in fomenting violence in the West Bank. This is the man who was responsible for smuggling weapons through Jordan into the West Bank, for uh, pushing operatives to carry out attacks there. And so even as early as this summer, before the October 7th attack in the south, the Israelis were expressing their concern about the rise of Hamas violence in the West Bank, and were specifically pointing their finger at him even then. 
Now, Israel has not claimed responsibility for this attack, but Hamas is certainly pointing the finger at Israel. Um, so too is the Prime Minister of Lebanon. So how do you think Hamas, Hezbollah, and Lebanon more generally will respond to an alleged assassination like this in the country's capital? The Israelis have said quite publicly that they plan to target those Hamas individuals who uh, were behind the October 7th massacre. Salah al-Aruri would certainly fall into that category. And while the Israelis have not taken any responsibility for this attack, one Israeli spokesperson said, look, whoever did this clearly had a beef with Hamas and only Hamas. This was not an attack on Lebanon. It was not an attack on Hezbollah and an effort to kind of constrain uh, the response. I don't see a situation in which there is no response. Uh, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah has said before that if uh, leaders of his or other uh, militant groups in Lebanon were targeted, he would do something. But I don't see him ratcheting up uh, to a full-scale war. That simply is not something that Hezbollah wants in the moment. Even Iran wants most of Hezbollah's rockets uh, kept at bay right now because Iran sees those as deterrents against Israel or anybody else targeting their nuclear program at a time when Iran actually is ratcheting up some of its activity with its nuclear program. Can you draw that out a little bit more? Why do you think Iran would want to take this position and avoid a full-scale or escalation of the conflict? Well, Iran certainly wants escalation, but Iran has multiple proxies at its disposal right now. It sees the Houthis carrying out uh, drone and ballistic missile attacks at Israel and uh, causing tremendous maritime disruption uh, in the region as a very, very successful and cost-free. Uh, it understands that the rockets that Hezbollah has, specifically the precision-guided missiles that Hezbollah, Hezbollah has, Iran sees those as the main deterrent capability that it, Iran, has to prevent Israel or others from taking military action against Iran's nuclear program. And if someone should do that, they see these rockets as being their best chance at a second strike capability. That plus the kind of severe political and economic instability in Lebanon has created a situation where Hezbollah and Iran both understand that really nobody but the most hardline people within Hezbollah want the war to expand into Lebanon. Uh, no Lebanese want this to happen right now. So the timing is not good. It's why you haven't seen Hezbollah get more involved in the war than they than they have with limited daily anti-tank guided missile uh, shootings uh, one to three kilometers into Israel. That's something. It's quite significant, but it's nowhere near what their capabilities are. And so in the moment, I expect they will do something more than that, probably a one-off or a couple of things, but they're not going to look to expand this war uh, to a full second front uh, involving Lebanon at this time. Speaking of timing, as you did there, this comes a day after Israel announced it would withdraw thousands of troops from Gaza. How do you interpret that move, and is it uh, perhaps a response to the Biden administration's press pressure to shift from high-intensity to lower-intensity operations? So it was always the Israeli intention uh, to have this kind of three uh, stages to their war. They're moving into stage three now, which they say is going to take many more weeks, many maybe months, but not the high-intensity ground force that we've seen, both as an effort to kind of scale down the nature of the conflict and see fewer uh, civilian casualties, 
but also as an effort to get the Israeli economy uh, rolling again. You can't do that when you have hundreds of thousands um, of breadwinners uh, called up in reserves. And so the Israelis seem quite um, committed still to targeting Hamas leadership in Gaza, Yehia Sinwar. They seem to be quite close to where his base of operations at least used to be in Khan Yunus. Um, that, that will certainly continue, but I don't think we're going to be seeing the same number of Israeli soldiers on the ground day in and day out as we did uh, for the past few weeks. Since the start of the war in Gaza, analysts have been concerned about the risk of a wider regional conflict. Now, as we start 2024, how would you evaluate that risk, given this alleged assassination in Beirut and the rising tensions we are seeing in the Red Sea? Look, the way this has to be seen is that Iran and its proxies created a regional conflict out of this Hamas raid into southern Israel and the massacre that ensued on October 7th. They dispatched uh, the Houthis to carry out the attacks they're doing from the south. They've had Hezbollah carrying out daily anti-tank guided missile attacks from the north. You've had uh, Iran and Hezbollah and other Shia militias carrying out attacks targeting Israel uh, from Syria. Um, all that's already happened. What you're seeing now is the Israeli response. Uh, and so Israel, just a few days ago, purportedly uh, Israel targeted um, a senior uh, Iranian general uh, in Syria. Now you see them targeting the uh, deputy secretary general of Hamas in Lebanon. And I think their message is clear uh, that this type of regionalization of this conflict everybody trying to jump onto Israel at once, which is very much what Iran's strategy was, a unity of the fronts, it was called, uh, is not something that Israel will stand for. So do you think, or what's the risk, perhaps, of things escalating further now that Israel is starting to respond? I think you will see, for example, Hezbollah respond in some way to this attack in Lebanon. I don't see them not doing that. I don't see it going beyond that, and I see it kind of uh, shifting back to where it's been uh, with daily attacks, but of a certain type and only a certain depth, uh, because most of the parties are very, very happy to kind of uh, punch Israel in the face uh, daily, but they don't want it to go much more than that. And I think they're understanding now that the Israelis mean business. They meant business with what they did in the Gaza Strip. Uh, they meant business with what they did targeting an Iranian general in Syria. They mean business with the targeting of a Hamas leader who's responsible for terrorist attacks from Lebanon. And the message, I think, is clear. Stop targeting us, and there will be a ceasefire. There was a ceasefire on October 6th. Uh, then Hamas broke it, and this regionalization broke out. All right, to have to leave it there, Matthew Levitt is a counterterrorism and intelligence expert at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Thank you for your time today, sir. Twenty twenty three may be over, but the core challenges faced by Canadians are following political leaders into twenty twenty four. Chief among them, the high cost of living. So we can get building more homes, increasing supply, and lowering the prices for families. Why won't they stop sending Canadians the bill and let Canadians afford to eat? heat and house themselves. The agreement gives us the ability to negotiate and force this government to do more. Unlike the Conservatives whose goal is just to force an election, our goal is to force this government to work for people. Even though we have a lot of work to do, Canada is not broken! There will be a carbon tax election. 
I will win the carbon tax election, and whether you like it or not, I will axe the tax. It's clear that we don't agree with the Liberals' divisive tactics. We don't agree with the climate denial of the Conservatives. We have our own path. Pierre Poiliev and the Conservatives are leading in the polls with a message that Canada is broken. Will they continue that narrative, and will Prime Minister Justin Trudeau return to Parliament Hill with a new strategy? The Power Panel is here to weigh in on the year ahead in Canadian politics. In studio with me, Kate Harrison is the Vice Chair of Summa Strategies. Matthew Dubé is Vice President of Proof Strategies and former NDP MP. And Michelle Cadario is the CEO of Vanguard Strategies and the former Campaign Director and Deputy Chief of Staff to Paul Martin. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. Thanks for being here today. Happy New Year. So let's start with the affordability issue, and Michelle, I'll start with you. No one could really say it's been a winner for the Liberals this year. How could they generate some momentum on this issue going into 2024? Well, there's no question that affordability with inflation being so high, with families really feeling the, you know, the hurt, when the pain when they go to get gas, when they go and get groceries... Um, and, you know, the Liberal government hasn't been probably as empathetic as, uh, as they might want to be. And, um, and I think that part of what they need to do is to communicate that they understand the issue more fully. And I think Mr. Trudeau was starting to talk about that a little bit in the uh, year-end interviews. You know, it's fun. And to give Mr. Polyev credit, he has been talking about it for a long time. But he's been talking about it without ever, without ever actually suggesting any kind of solutions or any kind of remedy. Um, and that's, you know, one of the benefits of opposition, um, where in government, they have to not only kind of start actually connecting with Canadians, that they understand the problem, they've got a couple of budgets left before the election cycle, um, where they actually have to demonstrate how they can alleviate some of those concerns. Well, I suppose that may be the big question for Pierre Poiliev. It's one thing to deliver a message and... Pierre Poilievre has delivered his message with a singularity of focus, mm -hmm. but is that enough or does he need to show a clear plan from the Conservative Party? Yeah, no, it, I think it has worked really well for Poilievre to be that disciplined in his messaging. Axe the tax, ditching the carbon tax, like it is associated with the Conservative Party and with Pierre Poilievre. So if you are looking for that kind of contrast, you have a messenger there. I actually think that the challenge for the Liberals, it, it's not just about messaging. A lot of the year-end interviews and editorial boards covered kind of Trudeau's mess he really has needs a better story to tell. Mm. Sometimes what you're selling is actually the problem. It's not just how you're selling it. And I think that the Liberals got a little bit closer to a major policy reversal in that a modification to the carbon tax, obviously, um, primarily benefiting Atlanta Canadians. I think they would have needed to do a much bigger change in order to show that understanding that Michelle has talked about. Um, instead, we saw some niche kind of tweaking and politicking around who benefited from that. But I think that they need to take a really serious look at the policies they're putting forward messaging is part of the challenge, but sometimes it's the policies themselves that are the bigger problem, and I think that's where the Liberals find themselves. Okay, I will return to that carbon tax debate in just a minute, but first, Matthew, over to you. Where do you see the politicking going on the affordability issue into 2024? I think the biggest challenge for the government is how baked in the feeling is. I, there's more, there's been a few comments out there, or, or pieces out there saying, you know, oh, when the interest rates get lowered, or if the economy turns around, then, then fortunes will shift for the government and 
Um, I'm not entirely convinced of that, just because it really does feel like after you know eight years in power and coming into a ninth year that there's that feeling of of people wanting change, and I think that's that's a feat. When I mean, it's a recurring theme on the show on this panel. It feels when we talk about feelings and and sentiments and perception versus reality. But I think the feelings and the perception are one that um, you know even if prices were to dip in the grocery store, I think people just feel that pain right now, and whether it's real or not, and in many most cases it is very real. I think that's a, a huge problem for the government. And I think where you're seeing is they're getting pressed on both sides as well. With the NDP, you know, Jagmeet Singh has a high wire act to do to both take credit for the good things the government's doing that the NDP has pushed them to do, like dental care and, uh, you know, eventually on pharmacare and other things, anti-scab legislation. But the reality is you also need to point to the pain that people are feeling. You know, the word empathy was used uh, earlier about the fact that the government has had a huge challenge in looking like they, they care, and I think that's that's where they're, they're getting crunched by, by the other parties. Mm -hmm. Michelle, I'm going to return to you. Uh, in terms of defining the, the narrative, do you think the Liberals need to double down on their climate policy in response to Pierre Polyev's promise of a carbon tax election like we just heard? Well, you know, I say bring on a climate election, quite frankly. If, if Mr. Polyev wants to walk in, wade into those waters, then let's see what he has to say. It's really easy to have an Axe the Tax um, slogan. It's simple. It goes, you know, it's, all, your, all your candidates are going to remember it. You can say it. You can say it wherever you want to say it. But what's behind that? What does that mean? Um, are you going to not have a climate, a um, a climate uh, strategy? Are you going to do nothing about all the forest fires? Are we just going to ignore the carbon situation that's happening around the world? Um, you know, it's not that simple. And, that's, and government isn't that simple. And so, you know, I think that as Mr. Polyev gets pressed on what he, so acts the tax and then what? And no, one's, no one has to ask that question right now. He doesn't have to respond right now to what comes next. Um, and so, but during a campaign you do. And so that's a whole different dynamic. Now, that's not to say that the Liberals are in, um, don't have to also acknowledge that there are situations, uh, and, and they made a change with some Atlantic Canadians, and you know there are a lot of people who are actually feeling um, the cost pressures. Uh, and you know having taxes and, and increases to taxes can actually can add to that burden in some cases. So again, there has to be some kind of recognition of that and understanding of that, and probably also speaking to what you're actually, why we have a carbon tax, what we're working towards. Um, and hopefully there's a more fulsome kind of uh, debate as we go forward. Kate, in response to that, should the Conservatives be worried about the carbon tax election if and when it happens turning into a climate change election? No, I, I think that they would welcome that. And if you look at kind of the issues that the Canadians care about the most right now, climate and environment has dropped considerably on that list as affordability challenges have given way. I think what the Conservatives have done successfully is link those two things together. For the longest time, the Liberals insisted, of course, that there wouldn't be an impact. And in fact, some people might actually be better off with the rebate checks that they're getting as a result of the carbon price. Trudeau's change in October is an admission that that is not correct. Uh, and we're talking about this issue now as it relates to the immediate affordability challenges people are facing. So I don't think that Canadians are, are separating kind of the, the necessity that may exist for a price on pollution from what they're feeling at the pump. Um, and then we see it coupled with additional, I would say, out-of-touch measures like uh, EV mandates that are very unrealistic. Manufacturers are saying they're unrealistic. Um, you know, more uh, high 
hijinks in the courts on things like plastic bans and bag bans. And it just, for the pressures that people are facing today, these uh, baubles that the Liberals are chasing on the environment just seem increasingly out of touch. So I think the Conservatives would welcome uh, an election where environment uh, and affordability issues are certainly front and center. Matthew, do you buy that? I, I think they've, the Conservatives have been successful in conflating a whole number of issues. You get you know, provincial gas taxes, you get provinces where the, the federal carbon tax doesn't even apply, like in Quebec and British Columbia, where there's just, again, it goes back to that, it's going to be my recurring theme today, maybe for this year, is it's that feeling, right, that people are feeling that pressure at the pumps. But I do feel that on the climate change front, you know, you just have to look at somewhere like Manitoba, where uh, Premier Canoe, who's very much someone who believes in climate change, whose government will undoubtedly do progressive things to combat climate change, has kicked off the new year, you know, with following through on a, an election promise to to suspend the gas tax in that province. So um, it's really that pragmatism that I think people are recognizing. To Kate's point about that very fine line uh, of you know saying, are you you know what are you going to do about climate change, but also the affordability issues that people are facing today. Um, and I think, you know, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think for the government, that's the big challenge that they have is, uh, I think it's easy to just speak to climate change denialism. But uh, when you start explaining, you're losing in politics, right? And I think that's going to be a, a big, big challenge. There's a lot you can criticize the conservatives on, but the government hasn't really seemed to have been very successful at it. Uh, only own goals about heat pumps and things like that, which granted, good decisions, but just highlighting some of the flaws. If I could really okay. quickly add to that, I can, just, I can give you 45 seconds. Oh, okay. Round I don't of 45 even need that. Seconds, so go it ahead. Would also, it would also be a better line of attack if the Liberals were meeting their own targets on climate, but they're not, right? So they're upsetting two constituencies here. They're upsetting people that are upset about a carbon price at all, and then they're not meeting that kind of terracotta liberal, that orange liberal voter that might prioritize climate issues by actually leading on climate change, meeting the emissions targets that they set. And Michelle, over to you on that one. Would you like to respond to that point? Well, those are the same targets that Prime Minister Harper also had. And so I just point out that, uh, um, you know, it, uh, it is, there are lofty targets. There's no question about it. And I think that, um, you know, if people are being really realistic about what it will take to achieve those targets, it would be massive change. And I'm not sure that you can't bring about these kinds of changes without bringing Canadians with you. And so where I will agree with you is that you have to be, you have to be communicating better, not to, to use that as an excuse. But you do have to ensure that people are coming along with you as you're making these targets. Let me tell you, in northern Ontario, where I was for much of the summer, and anywhere out west, those wildfires, and what am I saying, even in Toronto, wildfires were, were, were overwhelming news internationally about what was happening here in Canada. People are talking about what climate change is doing, and they actually want to see a government that's going to do something that's concrete to try and address that. All right, Matthew, and, I can give you, you know, 30 seconds. I've got to jump in there. Last word over to Matthew, 30 seconds. Well, it's absolutely true. There is a cost to climate change, you know, whether it's the insurance rates you pay, the cost to the environment, the cost to human life, the, you know, wildfires that Michelle just referenced, that's all absolutely true. And I think the, the, the challenge for this government, like on, on so many issues is, again, it's just, you know, we keep coming back to messaging and the, the explanations and to Kate's point, not meeting their own targets. And I suppose when you hear that the, the last prime minister before Prime Minister Trudeau, Mr. Harper also missed them. Um, that I think that shows where, why we're in this problem to begin with. I've got to jump in there. I want to thank you all for being here. Michelle Cadario, Kate Harrison, and Matthew Dubay.
That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Brett Forster, and thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.